Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people who are known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Kaelin McPherson. And I'm Bria Barthel. Blaze Bryant and Hugh Johnson have the day off today. Here's what they're missing. We begin with Mark Dunley talking with Laura Shindell of Food and Water Watch about the Iroquois Pipeline Company's proposal to build four new compressor stations along the route of the pipeline. Then Andrea Cunliffe brings us part two of her interview with Media Sanctuary's new executive director, Kristen K.P. Holler. Later on, Kaylin and Sina Bazila Hickey explore rock climbing at the Albany Indoor Rock Gym. After that comes my discussion with Paul Stewart of the Underground Railroad Education Center about the many events they have coming up for Black History Month. Finally, as another prelude to Black History Month, we hear Willie Terry's report with Brother Malik Mohammed recorded at the December 29th Kwanzaa celebration. But first, here are some headlines. The Times Union reported that research by the Brennan Center for Justice and the organization Open Secrets showed that in New York State, New York State statewide and legislative races in 2022, the top 200 donors collectively gave almost $16 million, more than $13.5 million collectively donated by the 2006 donors giving $250 or less. Oh, let's correct that. 206,000 donors giving $250 or less didn't match the top 200 donors. A poll conducted by the New York Public Interest Group in Public Interest Research Group in mid-January shows that 71% of respondents supported expansion of the bottle recycling program to include other beverage containers, such as those for teas, sports drinks, and alcoholic drinks. Just over half of the respondents support raising the bottle deposit from $0.05 to $0.10. The New York State Police have charged secretary for the law firm in Schoharie County with embezzling $265,000 from a law guardianship, putting it in her own account, and then trying to cover up the theft. The contentious campaign around Governor Hochul's nomination of Hector LaSalle to be New York State's Chief Justice for the Court of Appeals has uh, highlighted an apparent gap in public information about groups supporting or opposing legislative appointments, which are not required to register as lobbyists. The state's Commission on Ethics and Lobbying in Government, the newest version of the former JCOPE, the Joint Commission on Public Ethics, might be pressured to address this topic at their regularly scheduled meeting this Tuesday. The city of Walter Verlede has been named as the eighth best place in the country for the first-time homebuyers. The ranking looked at several factors, including affordability, livability, and where it might be easier for young buyers to get into the housing market. So-called hotspot cops were the ones who killed Tyree Nichols in Memphis. The controversial units have been responsible for high-profile killings and civil rights abuses in cities nationwide. Governor Hochul last year doubled their state grant funding in New York and recently said she wants to double it again. The Daily Voice Capital District reports that the city of Troy recently revealed that they found elevated lead levels in some of the of 60 homes and buildings they tested throughout the city. On its website, the city said that the higher readings may be due to lead water service lines or interior lead plumbing. City officials said they were committed to removing all lead service lines from the community. They asked those living in homes built prior to 1975 
and who have not had water service inspections to contact the Department of Public Utilities at 518-237-0343. That's it for the headlines. But finally, in Hughes' absence, here's a preview of the coming weather. The capital region will be cold Thursday night through Sunday morning. Temps will be below freezing and even below zero Friday evening. Wrap up. Now moving to our first story, Mark Dunley brings us this interview about the proposed building of four polluting and noisy compressor stations along the path of the Iroquois pipeline to push gas from northern New York to New York City and other areas. We're joined by Laura Schindel, who is one of the um, New York senior organizers at Food and Water Watch, and there is a hearing um taking place on Tuesday, uh, January 31st by DEC about the Iroquois Enhancement by Compression Project, which is a gas pipeline that runs through the northern New York, including the Capital District, and I guess down to Connecticut and down to the lower part of the state. And they're looking to put a bunch of compressors in, including in uh, Athens and Dover, the two of the four that are closest to us. So, Laura, why should people be concerned about this proposal? Well, thanks, Mark, for covering this important topic. There's a multitude of reasons to be concerned. I'll start with, you know, local impacts and then broaden out um, to why we don't need more fossil fuel infrastructure in the first place. But this, this proposal aims to drastically increase the amount of gas that is pushed through an existing and aging pipeline. Uh, it's called, it's the so-called Iroquois pipeline. Um, and we always put that in quotation since it's not the Iroquois people's pipeline. Um, but that pipeline's been around 37 years and now uh, the company wants to drastically increase the amount of gas that gets pushed through it, which creates an inherent risk for the communities along that whole route of the pipeline from northern New York down through uh, Connecticut, Long Island, and New York City. Um, and in order to push more gas through that pipeline, like you mentioned, they aim to do a build out of compressor stations, uh, two of which are proposed in New York, in Athens, and in Dover. Compressor stations are very loud and very polluting to the air. Um, and so they're really uh, a disruption and uh, toxic influence on the communities where they're built. Um, and the other piece of it more broadly of why we should be concerned about this is that New York State is supposed to be moving to a renewable energy future. And Increasing and building new fossil fuel infrastructure is totally antithetical to that. Now, the company claims they need to deliver more gas to downstate, to New York City and Long Island, but there have been local laws that have been passed that should be decreasing the demand for gas. Um, in New York City, there was a law passed in 2021 that requires all new construction of buildings be all electric. Um, so no more gas hookups. So that should be decreasing the need for more gas, as well as efficiency measures passed at the city level as well. So the um, there's no need for this gas and um, it's antithetical to the state's climate law. 
Well, this seems like a bit of a you know slam dunk here, as you point out. Uh, you know, DEC as a state environmental agency should be making plans about how to phase out um, you know the use of gas, not allow companies to do business as usual. In fact, expand uh, the use. You know, has you know the governor Hochul's people you know sort of weighed in and you know made it clear that this is something that they expect the state agencies to fall in line with now that the state law has been passed to uh, reduce the use of uh, fossil fuel emissions in New York State? We haven't heard anything from Governor Hochul's administration directly, but in the DEC's notice for this upcoming hearing happening on Tuesday the 31st, the DEC does use language that would imply they're ready to approve as long as the company's able to meet X, Y, and Z standards. So it was written in such a way that looks like if we do not speak out and if we do not form the public pressure and movement that is always necessary to stop these sorts of proposals, that it likely would get greenlit because the industry is always very effective at making huge infrastructure projects seem like small, inconsequential uh, projects. And, and we just know that's not true. I would not, it's a slam dunk if you think about it in terms of the facts on our side. But if politicians and agencies always made decisions based on science and um, facts, we wouldn't be in the climate crisis that we're in right now. Usually with gas pipelines, especially gas pipelines that go across state boundaries, you mentioned two of the compressor stations are going to be in Connecticut. Doesn't the federal government usually step in and regulate this, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission? So what's the role of the state in this situation? That's exactly right, Mark. So um, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC, does have a role to play in the permitting since it's an interstate project. Um, And in fact, the pipeline starts in Canada and then goes into New York and Connecticut. However, we know that that federal agency, FERC, always rubber stamps infrastructure proposals. They're very much in the pocket of the industry. Every time we've stopped a fossil fuel infrastructure proposal in New York State, from power plants to pipelines, it's been at the state level. And so the Department of Environmental Conservation at the state level in New York um, is tasked with approving or denying the air permits required for these new compressor station buildouts. Um, and so that's what specifically this hearing is on for Tuesday the 31st, is that the New York State DEC will be considering whether or not to give air permits to these compressor stations. And we expect that that is the mechanism of the way we can stop the project rather than appealing to the feds, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, who um, are usually much more difficult to influence. Now, this hearing is taking place on uh, Tuesday, January 31st at 6 p.m. I know it's too late for people to sign up to speak for this hearing, but if people wish to express an opinion one way or the other, uh, how can they find out more information about this project and how can they be heard on this issue? 
Um, thanks for asking that important question. There is uh, written comments that people can submit to the DEC up until February 7th. We're working to get that extended, but in the meantime, um, that is the case. And if people would like to file written comments, um, I, they would email the following email address with their comments up until February 7th. Um, the email address to send their comment to is depenergy at dec.ny.gov. And they can email their written comments up until February 7th at 5 p.m. And between written comments and lots of people testifying at hearings, that's the way that we're able to really show uh, public pressure and public momentum and have that on the record to give our agencies and politicians the backbone to deny these sorts of projects and stand up to the industry. Well, we only have about a minute left talking with Laura Shindell, a senior organizer at Food and Water Watch. I saw a whole bunch of Food and Water Watch people down at the state capitol, I believe, last Tuesday, uh, saying that the state needs to ban gas and new new buildings, all electric buildings act. Can you give us, you know, 45 seconds on why that's important? Thanks, Mark. Yeah, so um, buildings are New York State's biggest uh, portion of greenhouse gas emissions. And so at the city level last year, we passed legislation that bans new uh, fossil fuel hookups from new construction. So if you're going to build a brand new building, just build it right the first time, build it all electric um, so that you don't have to retrofit it later. So we're working to pass that same legislation at the state level so that our transition to a uh, electric and a renewable energy future can be that much easier. Um, it's the low hanging fruit, just build new construction, the sustainable right way the first time. It's very popular and common sense legislation. There were uh, several dozen legislators in support of the rally that you mentioned on Tuesday with well over 50 co-sponsors. This has been Laura Shindell, Food and Water Watch, and this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thanks to Mark for that report. Hudson Mohawk Magazine will be tracking this issue in future episodes. Moving right along to the second segment, recently the Sanctuary for Independent Media welcomed a new executive director, Christian K.P. Holler. Let's listen to the second part of this interview that KP had with the Hudson Mohawk Magazine's Andrea Cunliffe. For the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, this is Andrea Cunliffe in conversation with KP Holland, the new executive director for the Sanctuary for Independent Media. Your community involvement, your idea of social justice and working within the community and helping to develop more events and exciting things. So I started out at the Albany Barn and then as executive director. And um, in late 2015, early 2016, I was approached um, about a, an opportunity to bring the barn, for lack of a better term, to Schenectady, where I'm you know, from. I'm born and raised in Schenectady. And it really became this mission for me to figure out not just replicating the barn in another space, but how can we create a space that's like the barn, but that responds to the specific community 
where it's located and that allowed us to implement some of the things that we hadn't been able to do to realize some of the pieces of the vision that hadn't yet come to fruition by designing a different type of space. And so um, the Electric City Barn concept really morphed into more of this maker space, space where people could share skills, share tools, share ideas, collaborate, and you could do it as you just really wanted to as a hobby. You could build a business there. You could use it as a you know, a place to develop a program that engaged youth or seniors or, you know, really whatever someone's vision was um, for how to leverage the space. And so that's another reason that the work of the sanctuary really resonated with me is that so much of it has been about creating platforms that others can then sort of step into and use to share their own perspective, their own experience, their own creative expression but that there's the framework and the infrastructure and the support and the community there to do it, to take a chance on yourself and to try something and to um, let your voice be heard. And I really love that. I love creating a system and then opening it up for the limitless possibilities of these other folks kind of engaging with it and doing with it what serves them. How do you feel about a responsibility with art has to society and the society's responsibility is to art, to support art and promote. I I just, you know, I think one of the things that really hit home specifically during the pandemic and while we were all sort of stuck at home and trying to figure out, you know, life was just changing really rapidly around all of us, I think. And at least for me, I had moments where I felt uh, very helpless, uh, where I, I felt like making a plan for how to navigate this moment felt like so much because the next moment might require something totally different. And I feel like one of the things that we all turned to to cope was art. We discovered music. We watched the television series or the the documentary that we'd been meaning to watch. We created, we learned new hobbies. We took a virtual painting class or connected with a museum that was having a lecture virtually or a performance that we may never have gotten to see in person, but because we were all stuck at home and because all these organizations were trying to figure out how do we present to no audience in-house, you know, all of these virtual outlets sort of opened up. And I think it was really important to acknowledge that because somebody who was leading an arts organization through the pandemic, one of the first things I thought was, if we can't bring people in the door, how are we going to stay open? And when I reached out to funders, it was like, we have healthcare crises and food shortages and all of these like really urgent needs, right? <laughs> that needed to be addressed. And nobody's thinking about arts and culture. But really, if you think about how much people leaned on artists and how much artists took it upon themselves to be reflective of the times that we were living in and to some of the really challenging kind of social and cultural things that were happening and the issues that were coming up as we were dealing with this pandemic. To me, I really see art as as just as vital as those other aspects of, of our lives and food and healthcare and, you know, to really have a fulfilled and rich life, to be able to have access to opportunity to tap into our own creativity, but then also to experience the interpretations of others. It's a great way to find commonality with our fellow humans is to 
view of physical or, or um, visual interpretation of how somebody else is um, experiencing life. Um, and that's a lot of what art is. Is there a particular form of art that, that you embrace more than another? I am I'm an equal opportunity lover of art, of creativity. Um, I used to joke around that, um, you know, if you made dryer lint sculptures, as long as you were really excited about it, like I would follow you down that rabbit hole and learn all about your process of making dryer lint sculptures. I just think something really unique and interesting happens when people allow themselves to explore their creativity. And I almost don't care what the output of that is. I just think the process is so important. I think it's going to be quite a wonderful adventure to have you join us. And do you have any any visions or any concepts that you have in particular? Or, or how do you feel about what you're going to be doing? You know, I am very excited to learn. There's so much to for me to learn in, in these first few months. I think it's important that I get a really good grasp, um, even more than I had before, of what the sanctuary has done in terms of its programming and outreach and initiatives in the past. And that, you know, I really see my role as taking a wonderful thing and trying to strengthen the foundation of it all. So create the systems that make all of what's happened here sustainable long-term. But then I'm also really excited to reach back into some of the creative circles that I've had the absolute honor of traveling through, um, you know, over this last decade working in the arts and in the region and to, to stir up some potential collaborations and to build some new things that maybe are a little different than what's been seen at the sanctuary before. And maybe they're not that different, right? Um, but that's the thing that's so wonderful here is there's just limitless it's like a playground. Wonderful. I absolutely just every day am so thrilled. This year, people can look forward to the return of a lot of things that maybe weren't happening so much uh, through the pandemic, though the sanctuary did a really incredible job of pivoting to virtual programming and to hybrid programming. But we're so excited to welcome people back to the space. So we're starting to think about book talks and film screenings and music, the things that really are at the core of what has drawn people to come to the sanctuary. But then also thinking about using this time to be reflective about the folks who've helped to build this place and how do we capture all of their contributions create exhibits or reintroduce some of the archived material from the, the many years of programming here at the sanctuary and reintroduce that to people in, in new and interesting ways. So I'm very excited to welcome people physically back into the space on a more consistent basis. And I think everyone that I've talked to thus far has sort of shared what an important place of community this has been. Um, and that convening people to share ideas and collaborate has been a, a big part that's been missing throughout the pandemic. Um, and now that we have a kind of a better handle on how to do that safely, you know, we're really excited to to bring that back. Looking like Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, the majority of our staff is is on site here for at least some portion of the day and into the early evenings. So we're really hoping that folks will kind of return to you know, this being a place where they just drop by every once in a while to share an idea or to share a meal and to really bring that sense of community and, and coming together physically in space uh, back. 
I look forward to that too. Thanks very much for your time and look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you. Thank you so much. This has been Andrea Cunliffe speaking with K.P. Hollard for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. The Sanctuary Community is delighted to have K.P. Hollard join us to lead the organization into the future. And K.P. didn't even make me say that. Mm, I don't know about that one. For those just tuning in, I'm Kaylin McPherson. And I'm Bria Barthel. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network. W-O-O-C-L-P 105.3 FM Troy. W-O-O-G-L-P 92.7 FM Troy. W-O-O-S-L-P 98.9 FM Schenectady. And W-O-O-A-L-P 106.9 FM Albany and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org and in podcasts. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend, volunteering, or donating. Find today's story and more at mediasanctuary.org. Next, we hear about my visit along with Cena Bazilla Hickey's visit to the Albany Indoor Rock Gym, where there's opportunities to boulder, uh, top rope, bleeding, and so much more. It's a Tuesday night at Albany Indoor Rock Gym, and there are about 10 people climbing these walls. Some are, some are leading, some are doing bouldering, others are wall climbing. I'm here with Kayla McPherson. What's one of your favorite ways to get on the wall? Uh, bouldering. Bouldering, which is just no rope, but you're staying lower to the ground, below six feet. And you have previous experience yes. with rock climbing. What was that? That was up on uh, another rock gym, not this current rock gym. Uh, and it was on a team, so I started out on the team, and I worked my way up to uh, coaching training. And then, so I have that training under my belt. How would you describe... The walls here? The walls, there's some that are, are slanted with different colored walls and they're roots which are set on the wall. What I mean by roots, for those who don't know, they're marked with a level and you have to follow the certain color up the wall to complete the route with certain holds. And what's special also about this gym is they have a caving route so that you can go into the ceiling, slide down, quite spectacular. I'm uh, Matt Kent. I'm the head educator and instructor at Albany's Interactive. How would you describe this place? I would do it very well. Uh, this is this was the third rock gym in the country, so it is. There was no template for what rock gyms looked like, uh, so it's going to be different than any gym you've been in. We have a lot more features like cracks and 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 little things that you, they, that you'll see on rock outside that we're trying to replicate that you won't see in gyms that were made by a company that has a template for this is what a rock gym looks like. So uh, we have two. Uh, full rooms, the one with the green carpet here uh, was the original room. About 10 years later, that room was built. Uh, um, uh, and they were designed to train people to climb outside because the people who were making it climbed outside and gyms weren't a thing. 
Uh, the other thing we have is the caving system. We have almost a third of a mile of passages built into the walls and the ceiling in here. We're the only gym in the world that we know of that has a caving system like it. It was built by cavers to be like real caving movements. And the best way to describe it, it, it isn't rock climbing. You're not climbing on holds and slipping and falling. There's, there's no fall risk in the caves. You're crawling and sliding around, and you're basically doing problem-solving yoga. When you said it was the third rock gym, how old is Air? Uh, we opened in 1994. So rock gyms haven't been around for that long? Right. Yeah. Um, I think there was a few in Europe. There was one. I know the first one was in the Seattle area. It's still around. And then... Um, and I don't, I'm not sure what the other one was. <clears throat> I'm very surprised by that. Yeah. 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 I mean, they're so ubiquitous. Uh, there's gyms everywhere now. Yeah. And there's way more climbers who just climb inside than outside. There's no shame in that. But uh, um, it's pretty easy to forget that they are a relatively new thing. But also, we're maybe showing our age a little bit in that 1994 being relatively new. You know, that's 27 years ago. <laughs> so can you explain the different types of climbing? There's different types of climbing that you offer here, too. Yeah, um, we, a lot of gyms will have a top rope area where ropes are at the top and you're in pairs and you're climbing up and down. And then they'll have a separate bouldering area. Bouldering is a basic type of free climbing where you're climbing around without a rope. Everything we do here is free climbing in that your rope, your equipment is not aiding your climb. It's not helping you up the wall. It's there to protect you if you fall. Um, people mistake bouldering as being free climbing by itself. But everything we do here is free climbing. Bouldering, you're climbing usually low and slow. You're climbing small little puzzles that are near the floor and you're falling onto pads. We're a full bouldering gym, so we have a few hundred feet of bouldering area, <clears throat> which is pretty unique compared to most gyms that have just a small bouldering area. Um, and then we also, uh, like the instruction tonight, was about lead climbing where you're not starting with the rope up at the top, you're climbing around the gym and clipping your rope in as you go, leading out ahead of your rope. It's a slightly more risky type of climbing. It requires more instruction and more ability uh, because if you fall and you're five feet above your last clip, you're falling 10 feet before you get halted by your rope. So there's some considerations for that. There's been a huge surge in the popularity of climbing. Social media has aided in that. How has that changed the climate in here? Yeah, we have a lot more boulderers than we ever uh, um, did. So there's more gyms that are just bouldering, and bouldering is very accessible to people uh, um, in that you don't need a lot of technical skill to, to kind of partake in it. Um, so we, bouldering has in, it, in itself, above anything else, has definitely gone up in popularity. It's something you can do by yourself. Uh, um, I have mixed feelings about that. Climbing is not a thing you do against someone. You, you typically have to climb with a partner, even when you're bouldering, like you're trying to figure things out and puzzle things out together. So there's nothing wrong with bouldering, but it doesn't in, intrinsically have that, that cooperation necessarily built into it, baked into it, like when you're being belayed by a partner and then climb up something, maybe they follow you up outside. They have to be able to do the thing you climb. So you literally have to climb together. So uh, bouldering is great, really excellent problem solving, really fun climbing, certainly. Um, but I, I worry that it gets in the way of people's collaboration and, and cooperation. So we work really hard to get groups of boulders together, to give them puzzles. We, we'll play a game called Takeaway, where you're kind of working through things together. It is sort of a competitive game in that you have one person, you, you start on a hold, maybe climb 10 feet across the wall, end on another hold, 
And then you'd go put a piece of tape on a hold that you didn't use. And now no one gets to use it. And then the next person goes, and the next person goes, and the next person goes. And it keeps getting harder and harder and harder. And yeah, you can play it competitively, and certainly boulders do. But for the most part, usually the route just gets so hard. Everyone identifies the one hold that everybody has to have. Um, and then you end up trying to work out how to just get rid of that last one. And I see that bring a lot more of that cooperation back, even, even for boulders, even for people who are climbing solo. Introduce yourself, please. Uh, my name is Eugene O'Neill. Alex Phillips. How long have you been climbing? I have been climbing since August. About October, so three months now. Has it been difficult to get into? I think the only difficulty is a mentality, and it's really wanting to find some alternative way to connect with my body was really what brings me here. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think, yeah, the environment here is really good for training and coming back. And there's a good community here that I really like. So it's brought me back more than other gyms I've been to. Getting the strength, whether it be your arms, your back, or just your fingers is quite challenging. Did you have previous athletic experience that helped you get on the wall? I did a bit of weightlifting, which helped with some like core muscle strength. But there are certain finger strength and arm strength that you definitely need for climbing. But... Weights helped a bit for building up that initial tendon and muscles. And for you? <laughs> for me, I was, I'm a muralist, so I was painting uh, very close to before I came here, and I think a lot of that motion and strength and gripping the brush and climbing the scaffolding uh, gave me the slight prep work, but once you come in here, it's a way different ballgame. I think getting accustomed to the wall is the, the workout itself. An unexpected answer there. <laughs> so you mentioned the community here. How much of it is your pursuit for athletic adventure and how much of it is a way to bond with new people? It's about 50-50 for me right now. I mean, every time I come here, it's a mix of I want to train hard, work hard, but also I see people I like. So it's honestly a split right now, but I like it. It's definitely a 50-50. Um, my cousin's a climber, so it connects me to family. But... You find a family here more than most gyms. It's just there's, there's people here who are always going to support you. They're always going to tell you what, what, what could help, what's not going to hurt you. And then the other part of it is finding a, a healthy way to strengthen without finding these inevitable pit stops to get hurt again. You know, like, like normally you find in the gym, you just push it too hard. But like here, I think you only you meet your body where it's at. So there's less room to get hurt, which makes me feel more inclined to use it as a strength training. And what's been the biggest obstacle, or is there an obstacle right now that you're trying to get over to reach that next level? <laughs> you get really overzealous when you love it, and it's really easy to get hurt in here. And the discernment between stopping, or that didn't feel good, or I shouldn't actually climb this way today because I did it on two days ago. Or, so I think it's, it's that discernment between uh, you just not doing it too much and then allowing your body to recoup in the times that you're not stretching, flexing, mobility, all that kind of stuff. 
Yeah, I'll actually, yeah, I'll second that because I feel like with climbing, you know, tendons, they build differently than muscles. So it's when you're really eager and you're really loving it, you want to come day in, day in, day out. Um, but yeah, you kind of have to pace yourself. And so it's finding that balance of training and also enjoying it, but coming at a good rate so you don't overexert. And reach with your shoulders, with your core. So relax those arms straight down. Bring that left foot up and heel hook that, that lift. Yes, relax those arms, relax. Put your foot in that crack and twist it. Either, either one, that one or the next one over, the little slots. This is Cena Bazila Hickey. And this is Kaylin McPherson reporting from the Albany Indoor Rock Gym in Albany for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. My heavens, that sounds like fun. Thanks, Kaylin, to you and Cena for that report. A longer version of this story is posted on our website. Albany Indoor Rock Gym has opportunities for every rock climber. For more information, visit airrockgym.com. And are you maybe looking for less athletic activities? I recently spoke with Paul Stewart of Underground Railroad Education Center in Albany about the center and its many programs coming up in February. This is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, and today I'm at the Underground Railroad Education Center in Albany, New York, to talk with Paul Stewart, one of the co-founders with his wife Mary Liz of the center. Paul, welcome back to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Well, thank you very much, Bria. Good to be back again. For our listeners who may not be familiar, tell us just a little bit about the Underground Railroad Education Center and who are Stephen and Harriet Myers. The Underground Railroad Education Center is a nonprofit organization. It was started in 2003, incorporated in 2003, though uh, maybe you might say it started a little bit earlier than that because people do have to get together to decide whether or not to incorporate. Uh, and um, we focused on the story of the Underground Railroad, first locally in our immediate capital region area, uh, but then also the story just kind of flows and it reaches out. It has international aspects, not just, uh, you know, uh, people who were enslaved in the American South escaping from slavery and making their way north to freedom in the North and Canada, but also across the ocean, both to Europe and Africa, and also to the Caribbean and to the Southwest, to Mexico and the Great Plains. So there are really people going in all directions, uh, and it's a great story. And the Underground Railroad Education Center is on Livingston Avenue in Albany. Why is it here? Yeah, so we're at 194 Livingston Avenue in Albany, and the reason why we're here at 194 Livingston Avenue is because that was the home of Stephen and Harriet Myers, and in the course of doing research on the Underground Railroad, we found that Stephen and Harriet had lived here in the mid-1850s, and the building was still standing. So uh, we actually asked the owner if we could help him fix it up, and much to our surprise, he said, I would give you the building, except that it had liens against it, so... Um, through a process, we uh, the county foreclosed on him for back taxes, and uh, we approached the county and said, uh, can we purchase it from you, uh, which we did. We purchased it for $1,500. Since that time, we put more than a million dollars into the restoration of the building. The building was in terrible shape. Um, there were issues, so many issues. But why is this building important? Tell us who Stephen and Harriet Myers were. They were African-American abolitionists, right? Right. They were black abolitionists in the 19th century in Albany. Um, Stephen and Harriet, uh, after, say, 1830 or so, um, helped literally thousands of people who passed through Albany on their way to freedom or to settle in the area. 
Uh, and, uh, you know, they, they did that by providing food, clothing, shelter, and transportation assistance. Um, by the time you get into the 1850s, they're, they're allied with something called the Vigilance Committee of the Underground Railroad. And so we have a document that says the Vigilance Committee met here at 194 Livingston Avenue during the same time when Stephen and Harriet uh, were living here and, and functioning more or less as staff for the Vigilance Committee. So it's on the, the building is on the National Register of Historic Places. And uh, for Stephen and Harriet and for the Vigilance Committee and for its architecture. And this is certainly a driving force here in the neighborhood, but I want to turn, Black History is important year-round, but it gets more attention in February with it being declared Black History Month. Seems like you have quite an active schedule of events coming up for February. We do, we do. I think we get more requests during the month of February from different community groups that want to want to have somebody come and talk about something that is... Um, uh, really upbeat and solid uh, that that is about black history. What are some of the activities that you have going on? Well, February 1st, we have a uh, an event with the Albany County Legislature. Uh, on the 16th, uh, we're going to talk with uh, uh, some folks up at the Waterfleet Arsenal. Um, we also have uh, an event on the 6th at the Howe Library, where we're going to talk about the Underground Railroad in the South End. We're going to be doing some tabling at the Empire State Plaza. Uh, on our website, which is undergroundrailroadhistory.org, we have a calendar there, and uh, people can see some of these events by going to that calendar and clicking on the appropriate dates. And in our last segment, you talked about the URIC Underground Railroad Education Center reads. There, You have a book club. Tell us about that. Yes, UREC reads. We're we're reading a book by Gerald Horn called uh, "The Dawning of the, of the Apocalypse," um, and it's about uh, the changes that took place worldwide during the 16th century. Uh, most people don't think about the 16th century. I remember when I was in uh, grade school um, or high school, um, much of what they talked about that was relevant to the 16th century, they talked about it as the age of exploration. But what they didn't explain was it was also the age of, well, the, an age of colonialism where, where uh, colonialist powers were looking for gold and other riches in places around the world. And so, yes, there were explorers, but they were being followed by other people that were uh, exploiting these regions. And so um, uh, much, much of the the difficulty that we find in our own day, we can trace back to the 16th century. <laughs> Certainly that's with enslavement and uh, take... Diseases, enslavement, uh, the expropriation of large amounts of wealth from the Americas. Uh, those are some of the issues that were uh, born in the 16th century. So I want to switch back to the events because there was one that intrigued me, that you're going to be going out to Schoharie Crossing for a meeting. How does Underground Railroad relate to Schoharie Crossing? Well, there's a wonderful organization out there, um, the Schoharie Crossing Historic Site. Uh, it's a an Erie Canal-related um, site. They have a lock there. Uh, they also have a, a center uh, and they do programming uh, around the year, and so they ask us to do a program for them about the Underground Railroad, and so we're going to be doing that. Was the Erie Canal a, a popular route for people trying to get away from here and maybe into Canada? 
Yeah, the Erie Canal, I mean, transportation-wise, the Erie Canal was the transportation across New York State. Before the Erie Canal was put in, uh, it took about as much as a month for someone, say, in a wagon to get across New York State because the roads were both so bad and not non-existent. Uh, but once the canal was put in, it took a week to get across New York State. So that was an incredible thing. So people just naturally used the canal uh, as a means for getting from uh, Albany to Buffalo or from Albany to um, um, Mexico, New York, uh, or, or the... Uh, which is up by Lake Ontario, uh, and crossing the uh, Lake Ontario to get to Toronto, Canada. I know that on your website and in your presentations, you talk about some of the myths about the Underground Railroad, and we tend to think of it as being secretive and people uh, crawling through the forest in the middle of the night. And yet, it actually was people going on boats and other transportation publicly. Say a little bit about that. Yeah, that's one of the incredible things about the story of the Underground Railroad. I think most people are intrigued by the, um, you know, th- you know, things that may have happened in the dark of night or the immediate uh, incident of someone escaping from enslavement. But what they fail to remember that also part of that story, uh, say somebody maybe escaped in the dark of night um, from a plantation uh, or some other place where they were enslaved. Uh, and, and that first evening, maybe it was in the dark of night, but the next day, um, they, they might be encountering people who could be helpful to them, whether those were uh, uh, Quakers or other African Americans who uh, were operating churches or community centers uh, or who they might have encountered uh, on, their, on their journey uh, to freedom. And those people would be doing things like providing them a fresh change of clothes and uh, some money to take public transportation to the next place that they needed to get to. Uh, and then all of a sudden, the story has changed. I mean, the drama of the story has changed. They're no longer secreting at night, uh, but maybe traveling on the regular uh, transportation methods that are available uh, during during that time. So, uh, like for instance, in the Erie Canal, as we were just talking about, you know, those are boats that will be operating in the daytime, principally, uh, and and going across the canal. They'll be traveling with other people. Um, there's a story about the Williams, uh, a couple who uh, had an incident uh, in Syracuse where they were being taunted by some other people who were trying to. You know they were they were trying to have fun at their at their expense, uh, but they were traveling on a canal boat in the daytime, uh, making their way you know in that space between uh, Albany and uh, and uh, Buffalo. So there are lots of incidents like that, even at the material that we look at that we have uh, documents from that time period that talk about what people were doing. We're seeing people involved with the Erie Canal uh, as well as other modes of transportation. Great. And uh, you said that website for Underground Railroad Education Center is? Undergroundrailroadhistory.org. Thanks a lot. This is Bria Barthel talking with Paul Stewart. Thanks a lot, Paul. Thank you, Bria. Later this week, Paul Stewart and Bria will explore the evolving language for talking about slavery and the enslavement. Our show will be doing more reports in the next few weeks on Black History Month. And as reported earlier, Hugh Johnson is unavailable this week for our usual look at climate and weather. Instead, we have another segment related to Black History Month. Back in December, our roaming labor correspondent, Willie Terry, attended local Kwanzaa celebrations. 
This third of three segments from his visits brings us excerpts from Brother Malik Muhammad's presentation on Black History Month. People come hang nobody. It ain't gonna happen. That is out. We fought all through this. This is one of my greatest statements. I love this statement. I don't care if nobody said, I love Killmonger in the Black Panther because Killmonger was keeping it 100. He was a little psycho from abuse and all of that. But he said, bury me in the ocean with my ancestors that jumped from ships because they knew death was better than bondage. I love that, that was statement. was his last words. I love that statement. That statement is profound, that's me. I'm a warrior. We've learned a lot about the civil rights movement, didn't we? Yes. We learned a lot about that in school, right? Martin Luther King thought that human rights and civil rights worked. He tried it, it was good for our human experience because sometimes it's good to have somebody try it so when they come back you can say, see, I told you so. She gave the keynote speech to my graduation ceremony. Wow. Yes, and what was she was the first black woman to run for the presidency of the United States. You understand? Has a nice Jamaican accent or whatever accent that was, but we have the wife of Malcolm X. We have the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. We have a case for reparation. I moved a little too fast. Tulsa, Oklahoma. Oh my God. Right? Black people did well. We did excellent. Why did we do excellent? Somebody tell me why we did well. Why did the city no do well? Education. No education. Because, <laughs> first of all, I couldn't go to Walmart. I had to go to Sister, Sister uh, uh, Jackson's store to buy my shoes, because they wouldn't take my money. So what happened is that money moved around and circulated. The people taught their own self. They didn't send their children to no school to be downloaded with a whole bunch of uh, erroneous European information. I like the way I said that, erroneous European. <laughs> They're great. <laughs> so they were taught by black people that cared about them, that loved them, that was talking about family, and, and they was talking about everything that needed. Somebody name this gentleman right here. We're going to move on. Wait, who? Tucson Little Overture, right? That's the Haitian. I'm, after I saw the Haitian Revolution, I swear to God I walked out there trying to speak Haitian because I said, <laughs> I said everything about the Haitians, that's me. That's me. I'm fighting them. Now, but I'm rather, I, I'm more of a Dessaline dog. Tucson was a little arrogant. Sometimes we get arrogant when we get good at what we do and we forget who the enemy is. Because Tucson made the most ridiculous mistake that he could possibly make. Can someone tell me what he did? He trusted them after whipping they then went to Europe, lost his home base, went to Europe, and what did they do to him in Europe? Put him in a basement that was below the basement that was below the basement and kept him there. That's right. So that, 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 when I read that history, that kind of, uh, it just threw me off a little bit. Do we need reparations? 
Do we need reparations? Yes. No, the white folks said we gave you reparations. You got reparations when we gave you welfare. What? You go to school, we gave you education, you get your reparations. Come on. Black folks always asking for money. They want reparations now. Want reparations. We was promised reparations. We never received it. Lincoln was assassinated because they said there's no way the game plan is not going to change. So they stopped that. But it's heavier and stronger than ever. You got to pull it up because some cases they got some attorneys now that are so brilliant. They are laying a case for this and it is it's getting strong. Especially over there in California. Now if you want to take your money and buy a Cadillac and a bag of pork chops and get your... That's on you. I ain't going to tell you what to do with your money. I think you should buy some land and own some property, but that's, that's just me talking. Martin Luther King met with Donald Elijah Muhammad. They both from Georgia, both Georgia boys. Martin was just so rooted in it, and I tell you, sometimes, and Professor, I'm not throwing nothing away. So sometimes you can get educated so well that it'd be too well. It'd be too well. Because then it makes you arrogant, and so when truth comes from somebody that might not have a degree, <coughs> might have only went to the school third grade in school, <laughs> you might not want to listen because you know these have been bad for PhDs and Tom uh, High is one deeper and BS and all of these. So when a third grade educated man, I put him deliberately. One sister painted in the lobby, she painted all these black heroes, put Malcolm. And I said, why didn't you put the messenger in there? She said, oh no, I'm not putting the messenger. Right? Uh -huh. I said, but you can put a student, but you can't put the man that created the students. To me, that's kind of hypocritical. It's hypocritical. I don't care what you come up with. I don't care what you say in your mind, what kind of soap operas you want. If I can still find David in the Bible, mm who was the first boy, he's the first peeping Tom of the Bible, and he had multiple wives, Solomon too. I'm just being honest, am I keeping it 100? All right, the most powerful book, Message to the Black Man in America. It's still sold today, millions of them is being sold in prisons right now, all across the world. Hardest thing to do these days is to put some black woman in clothes because they think you're trying to make them a slave to put them in some cultural clothes. Because all the rappers and all them got them, got them running around. Uh, I'm trying to find a nice term for it, brother. Half naked doing some illicit, ridiculous stuff that is not healthy for anyone. So all I can say in closing, thank you for sharing. History is important. Why? Because when you go into a doctor's office, they say, what is your medical history? History. If you don't know your history, you get condemned to repeat it again. I have some black books here that I'm selling. I've read all these books. I know I have you read this book here. Mm -hmm. This book I got, I, could, I would love to sit down and talk with people about that book because it has some erroneous stuff in there, but it's okay. Fall of America, great book. Donald Elijah Muhammad, great book, great poet books. I have the 10 best lies of black history. I got free literature. Last year, and then the movie was shown, and I'm gonna end. They shown in the woman camp, 
Anybody saw The Woman King? The movie The Woman King. Anytime Hollywood makes a movie, know that there's a double agenda. You have to know there's a double agenda. They're not doing it for 100% to liberate us, right? So what they're doing, all women warriors with no men can't produce other warriors. Does that sound like an issue? You're a woman warrior, but you can't hook up with another man warrior to produce baby warriors. So where did your continuity come from? Where did your continuation? How do you, how do you produce that ultimate warrior? If you've already shut that up, and I don't care what nobody say, the sex drive is, is just, it is what it is. If you're around and you ain't amalgamating with no men, all right, they showed it subtlety in there, then they showed the black selling slaves. So now, Everybody that wants to use that excuse, well, black people yeah. sold us into slavery anyhow. You know, they use that one to justify yeah. slavery. Yeah. But if you read the history of how they set up in there, exactly. and who was the ones that they set up to do that distribution, you'll know that that's what they do. They set somebody up. They put a, somebody that looked like us, but they think like them, and they become the mediator between mm -hmm. And that's what, what happened there between the Spaniards and all the other people that was involved. The brush and share their information. Now, let me tell you, don't sleep on young people. No. They are way ahead of where we're at. Don't, don't, don't cut them short. Don't think that they're not going where they need to go. You just can't figure it out. But I think everybody read. Ikra, I'll tell you what Prophet Muhammad was told when he was in the cave. The angel Gabriel came to him, and he was fasting for 40 days. And Gabriel said, Ikra, Ikra, in the name of the Lord thy God. Ikra means read, read. And Prophet Muhammad said, but I don't know how to read. He was illiterate. But during that time in that course, he learned how to read. Everybody pull out some books, read them with your children, and I guarantee you it'll put you on another frequency. Because black is not this. Black is color, culture, and consciousness. And when you have color, culture, and consciousness, that's what makes you black. Thank you for listening. And that was Brother Malik Mohammed talking to the 2022 Kwanzaa celebration. Thanks to Willie Terry for the third and final report. For his earlier two Kwanzaa segments, see our website, mediasanctuary.org. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Kaylin McPherson. And I'm Bria Barthel. Uh, my co-host, Kaylin McPherson, also engineered this episode. Thanks, Kaylin. And fond thoughts to Blaze Bryant and Hugh Johnson, who may be listening to hear how we did without them. We want to thank all of the volunteers who made this episode possible. Besides Kaylin and myself, contributors to today's episode are Mark Dunley, Sina Bazila Hickey, Andrea Cunliffe, Willie Terry, uh, and Willie Terry. And we want to hear from you. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Media Sanctuary, or send us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org.